0: I wonder what things you've been noticing in recent days. Perhaps you're watching some birds build a nest in your garden. Maybe you're busy juggling work, homeschooling and sleep. Or perhaps you are noticing aloneness in a new kind of way. These challenging times are certainly stretching everyone in ways we couldn't possibly have imagined ten weeks ago before the lockdown, never mind last year when this sermon series was originally planned. This week we come to chapter 17 where the early church finds ways to speak to people, even when their culture seems very different. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, at least it would have if I had written this ten weeks ago. But today, as more people are caring for one another, supporting each other, shopping, phoning, whatsapping, just generally looking out for friend, family and neighbour, perhaps it's not so different to our culture. Or is it? Last week Tony shared with us about the new courage that Stephen found to tell his story even in the face of adversity. Well, lots of stones anyway. He briefly mentioned the young man watching the coats, Saul, who now, ten chapters later, is a changed person. I'm sure that you'll know the story of Saul's dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road. You can read about it in Acts 9, as he meets Jesus face to face, so to speak, and his life is changed forever. Very quickly there were conspiracies to kill Saul as he preached in synagogues and with his great understanding of scripture was baffling the synagogue leaders by proving Jesus was the Messiah. That's not something they wanted to hear. The believers keep a close watch on him too, a little suspicious at first. Had the leopard really changed his spots? Eventually the disciples accepted him as being genuine in his faith. But then there were more death threats, And so they decided to send him off to Tarsus, hoping he would be safe. In chapter 13, Saul's name is changed to Paul, whilst he's already on mission with Barnabas and John Mark, following the decision of the Holy Spirit. Acts 13 verse 2 Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This is the beginning of Paul's many journeys to other groups of people in many cities and countries in order to spread the gospel, to undertake the work of a new witness, to say what he has seen and heard, even in challenging times. I don't know whether you've ever noticed before that Paul had a bit of a pattern to his mission work. Prayer, check what the Holy Spirit's saying about where to go. When you arrive, spend time in the local synagogue or place where Jews gather, listening and talking. Find the people of peace who will help you in that place. Spend time in the marketplace or the place where everyone gathers listening and talking and then preach, baptise and build up a core group. Well it's something like that but not always entirely in the same order. And in chapter 17 we find Paul in Athens. It was a city under Roman rule. Initially Rome's conquest of Greece damaged the whole local economy but it readily recovered under Roman administration in the post-war period. As an empire, Rome invested its resources and rebuilt the cities. Corinth was established as the capital city, whilst Athens prospered as a cultural hub of philosophy, education and learned knowledge. And it's in this culture that Paul finds himself as he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him after their trip to Berea. Verse 16 tells us that Paul is distressed while he waits, why? Because he notices the city has given itself totally to the worship of pagan gods. He goes to the synagogue day after day where there are Jews and God-fearing Greeks. He begins to preach about Jesus to them and then moves on to the marketplace preaching there too and reasoning with just about anyone who would listen. He is soon heard by some philosophers known as the Epicureans and the Stoics. These two groups begin to debate with him. I'm fairly sure it would have got quite heated because of their differing beliefs. The Epicureans believed that the purpose of life was to eat, drink and be merry, seeking and indulging in the pleasures of life wherever possible. In other words, let's enjoy life now because we might die soon. Their gods are distant and don't care. The Stoics, on the other hand, believe in depriving themselves and pursuing some sort of harmony with all that exists. They thought that their gods were in everything, and so they had to be good and dutiful, just in case, I guess. Interesting combination. So in conversation with Paul, they argue back. Verse 18, what is this babbler trying to say? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They clearly didn't get Paul's message about Jesus and his resurrection, thinking it was some made-up weird philosophy of his own. I wonder if this is how some people view our faith today. Paul is taken by these philosophers to the Areopagus. The Romans called it Mars Hill, so he could explain his teaching more carefully to everyone. Verse 20, you are bringing strange ideas to our ears. This is Paul's chance to be the very best witness he can be. But how to do it in this free-thinking culture where any and every idea goes? Sound familiar? Our greatest challenge as Christians is always how can we be the best witness we can for Jesus in the places and times we find ourselves and perhaps none more so than now. Some might say what we read here is a masterclass in how to engage people in thinking about who God is. Well, I don't know about that, but I'm certain that Paul gives us some very useful ideas to copy in our own day. Paul was distressed by all the idols he saw in the city. This was for him a cultural collision in his mind. As he sees all these statues and altars, perhaps he remembers Psalm 119, verse 136 Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Idolatry was a no no. Remember commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. What about our society today? What or who are the idols that we have right now? I suspect they might be slightly different to what they were a few weeks ago, but nevertheless there will be things. Perhaps the freedom to come and go for some, or even bread flour and toilet rolls. Choking apart though, what are the things that people are searching after now? Who are the people whose every word others are hanging on to? Back at the Areopagus, how does Paul go about using this opportunity then to share his faith? Firstly, he looks for connections with the people and their everyday lives. And he uses those connections as a bridge from his story to theirs and back again. He acknowledges that they are religious people like himself. He points out that they have beautiful objects of worship and even altars with inscriptions. However, he says, one inscription he found is to an unknown God. And so, he goes on, they don't even know who they worship. He wants to help them know who God is, and that's what he's going to proclaim. Paul takes this piece of Athenian culture, idolatry, and uses it as a bridge to explain how his hearers can know the unknown God. We sometimes call this way of engaging Christian apologetics. It's about defending our faith in the face of other objections. Perhaps his stroke of genius is to quote their own philosophers and poets back to them in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being is from the Cretan philosopher Epimenides and we are his offspring is from the Silesian Stoic philosopher, Aratus. Once these connections have been made, you can almost hear the listener saying, Oh, so Paul isn't just a weirdo, but someone who can be engaged in conversation. He knows stuff, and we might find out things from him. Ah, but wait a minute, I can hear you thinking, I'm not clever like Paul, I don't know stuff. Well, I believe and know that you know more than you think. Remember back to what we said a witness was? Someone who shares what they have seen and heard. We've all seen and heard things that have helped us in our faith journey, and that's all we need to share, honestly. We just need to engage people in conversation. But what we can learn from Paul is that that is best done when we can make connections with who they are and their experiences. Paul uses an altar he sees dedicated to an unknown God as a springboard for teaching those in Athens about the real God that can be known. I wonder what in these times you might use as a springboard to a conversation about God with your friends, your family and your neighbours. Once the connections are made, secondly, Paul can make his point. He can share his gospel message, which he never waters down. I wonder if we do sometimes. Verse 23, there is one God and you can know him. Verses 24 to 26, he made everything, so he doesn't need our temples and statues. Verses 29 to 30, Jesus' resurrection proves God will judge us all one day. This is particularly important because resurrection was not a common or acceptable idea then. And then the crunch, verse 30, you need to repent. And be ready. Thirdly Paul waits for decisions to be made, positive or not. After all there are really only three responses to his message. It's nonsense, I need to hear more, I believe. Maybe for him and for us this is the hardest part of being a witness, the waiting part. So what happened in chapter 17 for Paul? Verse 32 onwards. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Verse 34. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. We see exactly those three responses in these verses. Some sneered, it's nonsense. Others wanted to hear more. I need to hear more. And still others believed. And then of course they had their own story to tell. Now they could be witnesses too. In my experience of trying to be a witness for Jesus, these are the same three kinds of responses that I have encountered. In these lockdown days, is it proving more or less difficult to be a witness, do you think? I suspect as time goes by, we will discover what the answer to that question is. At the moment, it seems that more people are trying to engage with faith as they feel fear and confusion and want some hope. I'm told that the number of people accessing online services has has significantly grown over these weeks. Now of course we don't know in what ways people are really engaging with all of the material that's out there for access by those who can. Nor of course do we know how many people are praying prayers of desperation that wouldn't normally do so and yet are finding some kind of comfort in that action. But what we do know is that God is at work in the face of this situation and he would like us to join in. So those conversations that we have with our children, grandchildren and friends on the phone or via WhatsApp or FaceTime, those shared cakes and surplus veg passed over garden fence to the neighbour next door, are really, really important right now. They say that we care. They say that people are welcome. They say that no one need to be alone. It might not always feel like that, but it's true. Society seems to have taken on the mantle of caring that the church is particularly good at, even renowned for. And this is bringing a change in culture for all, opening up more possibilities for conversation about why we do things, not less, no matter who we are. In these weeks of lockdown, many churches have been dealing with the immediate issue of what does the church need to be now, in terms of worship and care for its members. But what about in terms of evangelism and social action in the wider community? I've been wrestling with all of this from the very beginning, particularly within our context and the cultures that we live within. Those who can access our website will see that we've begun to make some changes to it, beginning to help those who might look at it because they want to know more about faith. For Mothering Sunday, the first Sunday we couldn't meet, we've made a weekly connection to all our Messy Church congregation instead of the monthly gathering we had before. We've kept in close touch with Beacon Academy, And this week we're able to take cakes into school again for the staff who are working at present. I know from many conversations that everyone is continuing to care for their friends and neighbours in terms of shopping and collecting medicine, for example. But can I ask the awkward question? Are we also talking about how God is helping us in this time? Are we being witnesses? Are we asking the Holy Spirit to help us be revealers of his truth to others? Peter said in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Are we doing this? Perhaps like me, there are some days when you don't feel that you have any hope. How much longer can this go on for? How much longer can I cope? On those days, we need someone to come close to us, virtually speaking, and encourage us. And we can try to look at Scripture for God's help. The Psalms are becoming lifelines for me these days. But what about those other days when we do feel okay, when we are talking to others? Are we able then to give a reason for our hope? I know it doesn't always feel easy doing this. None of us like to be rejected, even more so just at this moment. There will be people who say it's nonsense. We might worry about being asked difficult questions that we might not know the answer to, But that's okay too, because we can always say, I'm sorry, I don't know, but I will find out. And then there can be further conversation. And then sometimes we can have the joy of hearing someone say, thank you, that helps me know that I believe in Jesus. I believe that these challenging times are leading us to be new witnesses. There are many people revisiting their faith story at the moment, and some discovering it for the first time we might find that we have a role to play for them, whoever they might be, in their experiences. So let's try to be like Paul, allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us in how to build connections with them, match their story with ours and back again, engage them in conversation, help them discover the truth that Jesus died and rose again for them, and then help them discover a new hope and a new life as they let go of the past and all its stuff and embrace the future with all it holds, as John promises in our Gospel reading. As we all love Jesus and keep his commands, so we will be loved by him and the Father, and guided by the Spirit into new life with new trust. So let's pray for those we are talking with at the moment, that together we can find a new hope for their future. Amen.